This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. It's a great pleasure to welcome back <laughs> Kokyo Henkel, our friend and teacher. Many of you know Kokyo, but uh, just briefly as an introduction, he's been practicing Zen uh, for 30 years now, uh, mostly uh, in residence at Tassajara and Green Gulch and No Abode Hermitage uh, near Green Gulch Farm in Marin County. And uh, he also has practiced in Japan at Bukokuji Monastery in Japan. And uh, he is a student of Tenshin Reb Anderson's and uh, had received Dharma transmission from him and spent uh, seven years as the head teacher at Santa Cruz Zen Center, um, after which he, uh, as a true monk of no abode, hit the road and is living right now in Crestone and hoping to move on to Nepal um, eventually when, when, when it's possible. Um, he's <clears throat> also been practicing and studying uh, with the Tibetan teacher uh, Tsokni Rinpoche um, for many years as well, and that study informs his understanding and teaching. And we're very, very grateful that he uh, agreed to come and give us a talk. This is the last of our practice period talks on refuge. So thank you, Kokyo. Welcome. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Many old friends I've met over the years and some people I haven't yet met. Here we are together in this one place. And these days are the perfect days to explore the topic of refuge. From the moment we're born, it seems, we're immediately looking for something to rely on, something reliable, some kind of security. And uh, we may find bits and pieces of reliable security. with our parents as newborns, as we get older. I would propose we're still constantly looking for some kind of uh, security and something to rely on in this unstable, unpredictable, unreliable human life. Maybe our, our refuges become more sophisticated as we get older. We might um, look for security and uh, rely on um, maybe financial security or insurance policies or uh, good health care. These days, maybe we're 
we're uh, hoping to find um, security and reliance on a vaccine. All these things are worthwhile to, um, to use in our human life. Uh, but uh, from the perspective of Buddha's teaching, all of these things are uh, ultimately unreliable. Even if a vaccine is um, 90 4% effective, uh, it will not um, save our life because we're going to die anyway. As we know, it might lengthen it a little bit. Basically, anything we can possibly think of and relate to in this experience we call human life is uh, impermanent and therefore ultimately unreliable. And uh, we might then figure that, well, then there isn't really a, a complete refuge, a, a refuge that's 100% reliable. Maybe we maybe eighty percent is good enough for many of us, but um, some of us might not be satisfied with eighty percent. We we might uh, at least wonder if there could be a hundred percent reliable refuge, complete security that will never let us down. This type of refuge cannot be found in the realm of impermanent phenomena. Anything we can think of or see or hear or taste or touch. But of course, uh, our tradition offers such a thing a hundred percent reliable refuge. The triple treasure, Buddha Dharma and Sangha. As I imagine you've been exploring these many weeks, this topic of refuge, uh, some of this may sound familiar, but uh, just to review, Buddha, the same root as a flower bud that's the be just the opening, the, the first opening and, and awakening into a complete blooming flower is called a bud. And Buddha is related to this awakening, the awakened one. I think the, the 
root bud also can mean something like observing. Aware. And uh, Dharma has many, many meanings, but in terms of refuges, usually means something like uh, truth or reality or law of what is. And Sangha, the community of practitioners of Buddha Dharma. And Sharanam in Sanskrit means refuge and uh, can mean return to uh, rely on complete trust, recourse, reliance. And in, in Japanese, we translate uh, refuge as kie, two Chinese characters. Ki means to return to, and a means to rely on, return to and rely on Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And uh, Dogen Zenji are Japanese Soto Zen founder uh, kind of expresses this kie uh, with some images. He says, key to return to is like a, a child jumping into her mother's lap. That's the spirit of uh, return to, diving into. Uh, her mother's lap, the place of uh, uh, return, the place of security and ease, the place of love and protection. And then Dogen says the A, like uh, rely on, is the way that um, loyal subjects rely on a virtuous and and righteous leader, emperor, something like that. In the old days, sometimes they had uh, virtuous, uh, compassionate leaders of countries that one could totally rely on, again, for protection and, and um, support. Dogen expresses his understanding of refuge in various places, but thought it would be nice to look at a little more detail of how our, our lineage founder um, understands refuge in the three treasures. He actually talks about three types of triple treasure three types of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha that we take refuge in. He teaches this in, in his Shobogenzo essay called 
taking refuge in the three treasures. And he also teaches it in an essay called Teaching and Conferring the Precepts. And it, Dogen talks about these three uh, refuges slightly different in these two essays, but um, for the sake of simplicity and clarity, I'll try to kind of combine them into the, the aversion that makes most sense. They're, they're very similar, three types of triple treasure, three aspects of triple treasure, three dimensions of three refuges. As we hear about this, you can, we can consider um, how we might take refuge in the three treasures in these three different ways or these three different types of three treasures. Really, that in this case, we could say there's nine treasures. Three times three, we have nine refuges and uh, we're taking refuge in all of them. Dogen is offering us this opportunity to take refuge, to um, something to rely on. So I could start with the, the first type of triple treasure Dogen calls the one-bodied triple treasure or the single essence three treasures. Three treasures, but they're one single essence, one body. And uh, in this type of triple treasure, Buddha means verification of awakening. Buddha is awake, wakefulness. Then this wakefulness pervades all experiences of all beings we hear in the great vehicle teachings. And yet, if we don't verify this wakefulness, this all-pervading aliveness, then in a way, it's not really refuge exactly. Another name, Dogen doesn't say this, but we might say another name for this single body Buddha treasure is now. I take refuge in now. All pervading now, inconceivable now. Now that is not a tiny moment in between two other moments. It's like running along like a stream between past and future, not that kind of now. 
this is the now that is always now and it's actually not changing. If it were now that was changing, then uh, I would propose it wouldn't really be worthy of refuge. Maybe 80% because it's still pretty good to have a, a now that's moving along between past and future. And uh, it's a little more worthy of refuge, I think, than past or future. But if it's, if it's changing, um, it's another um, impermanent phenomenon. But what about this now that it's always now, has always been now and always will be now um, without the slightest difference ever? Could there be such a now that we all share? And in fact, if it never changes and it's always been now, we not only share it with each other right now across this ungraspable Zoom screen, but we also uh, um, share it with um, Dogen Zenji himself and Shakyamuni Buddha and the seven ancient Buddhas. Because we, when we consider when they lived, we may conclude that they lived now. And they experienced this as now. And uh, a lot of things have changed since the time of Dogen and the Buddha. Um, but that's just like the scenery of now. The scenery is constantly changing. But uh, now is simply now. So rather than now being like a moment that's um, moving along between past and present, we could see that now is unchanging, boundless, all-inclusive, inconceivable, all-pervading, eternal now. And uh, what we call time, this flow of time is, is moving through now, appears to move through now. What we call time is like the scenery moving through now. But uh, it's just this one essence now. And we can verify it by uh, opening to this possibility. And, uh, and considering the implications of this possibility that if there's always now, this now um, actually cannot be destroyed. Nothing can harm now. The, the scenery of now can definitely be destroyed and is being destroyed. It's being constructed and destroyed again and again, every moment, the scenery of now coming and going. And um, 
as individual people, we, that's the realm we live in and we take care of it well. But I would propose that we can take care of it uh, more and more skillfully if we remember that the, that the, that the scenery that's being um, constructed and destroyed by all these multiplicity of living beings, that that scenery is, uh, is just the um, kind of the display of now. And if we rely too much on the particulars of the display, which is what we tend to do, um, we'll feel at least a little bit insecure. But if we really rely on, return to and rely on the unchanging, indestructible now, I would say it's, dare I say, it's 100% reliable this now. It can never let us down. It can never um, decay and erode like the scenery does. I would say it's, it's truly worthy of refuge. It is the supreme security Maybe what we, what we uh, feel most insecure about in the bottom of our hearts, maybe our own death. So ideally, if, a, if, a, if any refuge is 100% secure, it must, um, it must, must withstand the, uh, the test of our own death. And could it be that now, um, could be reliable beyond the, uh, the changing scenery of our individual life and death. So this is um, in the one single essence, triple treasure, this is the meaning of Buddha and Dharma, according to Dogen Zenji, is freedom from, we could say, duality, freedom from fixation, freedom from belief. And in this case, we could say anything other than Buddha. Duality in this case could be understood as um, thinking that there's something outside of or apart from Buddha. Thinking that there's could possibly be truly anything other than now. Of course, there is the, the changing scenery which includes past and, and future appearances. But that's not apart from now, right? That's, um, that's the scenery that's flowing, seeming to flow through the unchanging now. 
it's not really apart from it or outside of it. How could, how could the past and future possibly be outside of now from this understanding of the all-pervading, all-inclusive, eternally unchanging, ever-present now? So I could say Dharma is often understood like, like the teaching or the understanding of the truth. And we could say that is, it's kind of like um, this Dharma is freedom from duality uh, is kind of pointing to an aspect of Buddha. Maybe, maybe, maybe we could even say the most important aspect of Buddha is that it's free from uh, the duality of anything outside of itself. But if we just take refuge in now, we might not um, notice this further dimension, this further aspect called Dharma, freedom from duality. You might say, yes, it's all well and good. I take refuge in now, but what about tomorrow? We have to remember that it's completely included within now. Otherwise, um, otherwise tomorrow is gonna be a big problem if it's not now. <laughs> and yesterday, we also make, often make a big problem of yesterday. And uh, I think that's, especially it's a problem when uh, we understand it to be not now. So um, in this single body triple treasure, the Sangha treasure is, according to Dogen, something like according with reality or um, har harmony with reality or the harmony or, or um, peaceful uh, togetherness within reality. is Sangha. We could also say it's the, it's the harmony or the accord between Buddha and Dharma. That if Buddha is all-inclusiveness of now and Dharma is its freedom from um, anything other than itself, it's a little bit like um, it's a little bit like exploring the relational aspect of now dharma is now is in a way like non-relational because it's it's this one one reality of now with nothing to relate to in that way it's non-relational but dharma we could say is is kind of like the um the way that all these appearances of our life, including past and future, and including coming and going, and pleasant and unpleasant events and all these things, that those are not separate from this now, they're included within it. You could say that, that that's a little bit relational now. And then Sangha is the way that um, all of this relationality is 
is working in perfect harmony, even when it seems painful. So um, we might even say this is the this is the bottom line understanding of refuge for Dogen: this single essence, triple treasure. This is our our true um, reliance, true, truly worthy of placing our security in this Buddha Dharma and Sangha. But this is just one of the, of the three types of triple treasure. Now, we could say based on this, on this reliance on the single body triple treasure of now and its non-duality and its harmonious functioning, then um, the second type of triple treasure is called by Dogen, the transformational triple treasure. And I think this is related to another term Dogen uses is the manifested triple treasure. And in this case, this is a little bit more like what um, many people might uh, think of when they first hear of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, this transformational transformation of triple treasure is that Buddha is Shakyamuni Buddha, the person who lived in India and around 500 years before Christ and uh, walked on this planet. Now, that's the Buddha, transformational Buddha, and transformational Dharma is Shakyamuni Buddha's turning the Dharma wheel in the deer park at Isipatana near Varanasi. The Buddha set in motion the wheel of Dharma, of the Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Path in the Middle Way. And then uh, as people began to understand that, the Buddha um, ascended Vulture Peak in Rajagriha, and again turned the Dharma wheel of Pragnaparamita, the total ungraspability of all appearances. And uh, as people started opening to that um, radical teaching and the Buddha in many places, uh, for a third time turned the wheel of Dharma of non-duality, that all appearances are uh, projections of mind and not apart from mind. And the Buddha kept turning this wheel of Dharma ceaselessly and it's, it's being turned right now. Because if the if Shakyamuni Buddha had had verified awakening for himself, but hadn't turned the wheel of Dharma, then um, we individual 
appearances of sentient beings would be lost in the, uh, in the scenery, the miserable scenery. So, uh, so this dharma wheel needs to be turned. And then the sangha in this transformational triple treasure is, um, again, it's kind of going along with this historical story. Dogen says it's those, those five monks who first practiced with Shakyamuni Buddha in the Deer Park, his um, old buddies who were, um, liked to um, practice meditation in the forest together. And uh, excellent, excellent yogis who did a lot of meditation, but the, uh, the Dharma wheel hadn't been um, completely turned in this world system at that time. So they were, they didn't have any like 100% refuge. So they kept meditating and kept meditating and looking for the 100% refuge. But, um, but it wasn't until their, their old friend Siddhartha became Shakyamuni Buddha and uh, returned to find them in the deer park and turn the wheel of Dharma. And then one by one, these five yogis got it. They got the Buddhist teaching because the Dharma wheel was being turned. It's interesting that in, the, in this human realm, generally the way the Dharma wheel is turned is through words. There's other ways too, but um, I think that was one of Shakyamuni Buddha's discoveries is that we can, we can do this thing in words. Words don't reach it, and yet uh, they seem to point as close as we can. Maybe it was also the Buddha's presence mixed with his words that awakened these five monks in the deer park. Or we could say, I think that's what Dogen is saying, that that's the, the manifested song of it. And of course, many other practitioners um, realizing the Buddhist teachings now would also be included in Sangha, but that's like the beginning of the story. It's Shakyamuni Buddha, his turning the wheel of Dharma, and then these, I mean, many other, many other people besides these first five awakened to his teachings, but that was the beginning. It's even said that, um, that turning the wheel of Dharma was not, as I understand it, is not exactly just this first teaching of the Four Noble Truths in the Middle Way, but, um, but it's when uh, Kondinya, the monk Kondinya, understood and uh, his Dharma eye first opened. And, uh, and he said, I understand. And the Shakyamuni Buddha said, Kondanya understands. And he kind of renamed him Ajnata Kondinya. 
which I means something like Kandanya who understands. He heard the wheel of Dharma and um, when he when he opened to the supreme refuge at that time, that's really when the Dharma wheel first turned. It wasn't exactly the words coming out of the Buddha's mouth. It was when they entered Kandanya's ears and uh, at his mind um, turned, that the Dharma wheel was first turned. So that's the manifested or the transformational triple treasure. And we take refuge, of course. We take refuge in Shakyamuni Buddha. We take refuge in, in his turning the Dharma wheel and we take refuge in um, those from the very beginning up to the endless end who realize the Buddha's Dharma. We take refuge in that Buddha Dharma Sangha. And then finally, there's the um, third type of triple treasure is the abiding and maintaining triple treasure. Abiding and maintaining. Kind of implying that, um, well, this was a long time ago, conventionally speaking, that Shakyamuni Buddha first turned the wheel of Dharma and Adnyata Kondinya uh, heard it. So it has to be like maintained and uh, abiding um, in this ongoing way. So Dogen defines the abiding and maintaining triple treasure like this, that Buddha, in this case, is uh, painted images and carved statues of Buddha and Bodhisattvas. That might be kind of surprising. Really? I thought we were, we were talking about vast, inconceivable, un, indestructible now, and now we're talking about these Paint, paintings and statues. <laughs> and Dogen saying, we take refuge in them. That's a, that's a kind of Buddha that we take refuge in. So, so um, Dharma in this abiding and maintaining triple treasure is the, um, the sutras spoken by the Buddha that were written down and translated into English and sit on the bookshelf I see some, I see some sutras behind some people on the screen. They're just books, right? They're just, um, they're uh, leaves of paper with um, black printing ink on them. We take refuge in those books. <laughs> I think it's what Dogen is saying. Those are the um, kind of like a, a maintenance a maintaining of dharma is the way that it gets printed and distributed and read. It has a liberating power. It's amazing. Again, it's like the dharma comes in these words. And sangha treasure in this um, abiding and maintaining triple treasure, Dogen says, is uh, wearing the robe and practicing the precepts and this kind of thing. So again, 
the robe is just this piece of cloth and we're devotedly into like sewing them. I see lots of them, rakasus and ocases. And uh, we sew them in the old style and um, and then we can even wear it. It's not that like functional. It doesn't really like keep the, the cold out so much, although a little bit it does. It's actually quite cool here in Cresta these days, down the teens. And um, Buddha's robe is quite warm. But again, you could say, isn't that just like a symbol or just like these paintings and statues and books and robes? We really were taking refuge in, in that. That's the Sangha is like wearing this, this um, robe like Buddha wore and following the precepts. That might be a little easier to understand the Sangha. Uh, but yes, we take refuge in that in that. Main, maintaining of Sangha, maintaining the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We might say it's symbolic, but I wouldn't say it's exactly symbolic. If it's just symbolic, I don't know if it would be worthy of refuge. I would understand it's more like it's um, just like Shakyamuni Buddha is a so-called manifestation of the verification of now, these um, abiding and maintaining types of triple treasure, we could also say are like manifestations. So like an image, a painted image of a Buddha is actually like an expression of now. It's a manifestation of now, right? And it's based on, um, if there's some connection with this particular type of painting of, of Buddha to um, Shakyamuni Buddha and also in Shakyamuni Buddha, there's a particular type of connection to the verification of the all-pervading indestructibility of now. You could say the painting reminds us, but even that may be a little bit too, um, Monday in a way to say it. It's true, but but uh, what if we really see that everything in this in the scenery that's passing through now is all a manifestation of now, but some aspects of the scenery are like um, maybe more directly expressing the single essence of now, and some people might feel like. They, they see an, an, a nicely artistically created image of Buddha and they, um, when they see it, they immediately uh, return to and rely on now. And we might not, especially if we get used to seeing the same old paintings and statues, but there is that potential. I think in this case, artists and artists are also manifestations of now have a, maybe a big responsibility to um, create uh, images that most directly remind us that they are now and we are now.
and books, sutra books, I think are really also designed to do that. That the paintings and the statues and the sutra books and the sewn rakasus and the following the precepts are all, I think that's what they're designed for, to remind us, you could say, uh, that they are now and we are now. Therefore, they're worthy of refuge. We could say, aren't they just part of the passing scenery? In a way, they are, that the paintings will not last forever and the statues will not last forever and the books will not last forever. But, um, but the essence of them, what those, what those statues and books and robes really are, in their actual reality, they're nothing other than now, are they not? Now expressing itself as paintings and statues and books and robes. So you could say they remind us of now, but actually in their true nature, what they really are, could even say what they're really made of. You think this, the statue is made of wood or bronze. It appears like that, but what it's really made of is now. That's all it is. It's a particular expression of now. So there in that way, even the, even the old wooden statues, totally worthy of refuge. Its true nature is indestructible. Its temporary expression is impermanent, but its true nature is indestructible. I think it's interesting that in, in, uh, in this maintaining triple treasure, uh, the Sangha treasure, we think we usually think of it as like, well, that's our like all of us, all these people who are practicing, but it it's funny that it, Dogen doesn't talk about it here as people. He talks about it as, as these activities. Sangha is the activity of wearing the robe and, uh, and follow, keeping the precepts, follow, having this um, beautiful harmonious conduct where we um, live in the world in a, in a harmless and beneficial way. The conduct is actually the Sangha, interestingly. And... Uh, Again, if we think of, well, what kind of sangha can we rely on, like 100%? Because uh, people are actually impermanent and, and actually not completely reliable. Even great teachers are not that reliable and worthy of 100% secure reliance and refuge. Um, so one time my teacher, Tenshin Roshi, uh, when asked, what is Sangha, said something like, um, Sangha is those who encourage us to practice. Those, meaning people, but also could be statues or books, whatever, anything, events, anything I think could encourage us. And not just to... Um, to practice, but encourage us to verify uh, 
wakefulness of now. So uh, I felt that, that really kind of stuck with me as a, as a beautiful and unusual definition of Sangha, because in this case, you could say that um, it's not like certain people who are like part of the Zen institution or something, in this case, the Sangha, it could, anybody who encourages us to remember and verify now, at the moment that they're encouraging us, they're Sangha. And it could be that we could widen our Sangha to include everybody and everything and every event. In other words, any, at the time that we're, we're remembering um, to verify now, anything that's reminding us to do that is at that time Sangha. And then another time somebody might be really kind of mean to us. I mean, this is, I think the possibilities for this kind of Sangha Somebody might like say something nasty to us. And, we'll, and usually we would say, well, they're not Sangha. They're not supporting my practice at that point. But actually maybe that nasty remark could actually like wake us out of some complacency and be like, we feel our own resistance and, and um, anger back at them. And then we remember, oh, this is a chance for practice. That person who kind of triggered my anger they're helping me remember this um, hard to remember harmony that's pervading uh, now the way we're all um, interdependent with each other. And they're reminding me that, so therefore they are Sangha. They're encouraging my practice almost in a, in a, in a, in a negative way, but they're encouraging it. So um, I think this is an interesting way to explore Sangha. Any, any body or anything that um, encourages or reminds us to verify Buddha. So um, that's, um, that's three types of triple treasure according to Dogen. We can take refuge in all of them. We can rely on them. And uh, I think it's probably obvious that the reason we would want to rely on Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, is that uh, it, is, it is the way of peace and ease and joy for ourselves and others, and uh, love and compassion and benefit, all kinds of inconceivable ways all flow forth from this refuge. We could even say that in looking at refuge in this way is the entire practice. There's no other, there's no other practice we need to do other than take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. It includes every possible um, beneficial practice in the Buddha way. So um, how about we close the talk with a chant and then we can um, we can have some dialogue. D dedicate the merit of our Sangha gathering here today to Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. May they continue to transform, manifest and uh, be maintained for the benefit of all beings eternally. Thank you so much, Kokyo. Um, we have time for some questions.
Thank you, Kokio uh, Henkel. Thank you very much. That was a great talk. Um, you know, I was talking to someone recently. We were looking at this book by Dining Katagiri and reading the first part of it. And he said something like daily, he says this, he says daily routine is a huge expansive continuation of routine activities, getting up in the morning, having breakfast, going to work, coming home, going to bed. Daily routine shows us how to live in this huge expanse of time beyond any idea we may have of time. This is everyday life. Daily routine is very important for us. It can let us be free from time. And um, that sounds a lot like um, the abiding and maintaining triple treasure that's, that's um, playing out in the midst of unchanging, inconceivable, what he calls time. What I what I call now, right? Yeah, I was I was struck by this particular passage, and I was thinking about how it seems to me that oftentimes when we hear the word "real," what is real in Buddhist texts, what they mean is what's happening right now, as opposed to what happened in the past or what's happening in the future. Because and that's sort of the things that we're pointing to in our zazen. Is that is that correct? This idea of the real is the I now. Would, I would edit that a little bit and to say that um, what is what is real is now but then the things that are happening even if they're happening in the like the present moment um, are more are still kind of like um, expressions of now but um, but now itself which is not in a not at something that's happening right now is this unchanging realm that's what's truly real and uh anything that's temporary even if it's in the present is not quite as real um as that which doesn't change thank you but but as i said you know talking about these manifested like manifested triple treasure you could say the manifestations that are changing and temporary in their true nature, they are also, you could say, real, because their true nature is the unchanging now. That's what their their essence, the essence of all changing things is nothing other than now. They're just expressions of now. So in their true essence, even temporary things have that real nature. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Kokyo. I have a question for you. Yes. You've heard this question before. <laughs> my question, uh, and sorry, I didn't raise my blue hand because I actually don't have one as the host. <laughs> um, What's the sound of one blue hand? <laughs> Endlessness. So my question, Kokyo, is, um, is in regard to the all-inclusiveness which you've mentioned several times is um, includes beneficial. Includes what? Includes beneficial actions and yes. actions conducive to awakening. Yes. And the all inclusiveness, I would say, has to include despair and terror and fear and yes. also as uh, manifestations of this now. Yes. Um, There's nothing that's not included. Yeah. Yes. So how does that 
um, when people hear that, when I hear that, um, and the, we think it all, we think then if if um, harm and non-harm are are equally manifestations, then why bother practicing non-harm like that? Not so much why because of consequences, but um, but yeah, I would say in terms of taking refuge or finding refuge, mm -hmm. how does one find refuge in the manifestation of things that are um, not conducive to awakening? Yeah, yeah, I think this is a it's a tricky one because conventionally speaking, then we we practice precepts as best we can and to to maintain the sangha treasure um, ourselves and then we see things that are don't seem to be in accord with that but uh it seems to me that the more we can open to um how all of this how all the harmful events are also ultimately speaking manifestations of of this uh all-inclusive now, the more we just, we keep remembering that, that, um, that true nature of all events and things and appearances, um, then, then we ourselves who are doing that practice of, of contemplating in that way, we become more and more open to everything. And then, so then our, our conduct becomes more and more um, loving because we realize that all of this is included and um, including our, our own pain, including our own pain at seeing, um, seeing all these beings that are not verifying Buddha's awakening and therefore um, hurting each other in all kinds of painful ways. We, um, we personally feel pain at that, but you could say the refuge is in this, and that all of this, the, the harm, the harmful violence, and the painful feeling in ourselves and others, all of that is is um, happening in the, within this big space of now. And uh, the more we can uh, take refuge in that, then um, there's some there's some actual like comfort and some security, some uh, relief in that way. Our, our very, that we, we're open, it doesn't eliminate our pain, but, um, but, but when we open to it, that the nature of our pain is um, this all-inclusive now, that it is like completely one with Shakyamuni Buddha's great awakening, our pain is one with that, then, um, then it's a different kind of pain. Not that it goes away, but it's like, um, it's almost like it's like a Buddha pain. Truly inconceivable. <laughs> Thank you. I see Anne is is waving her hand. I put my blue hand up, but I'm going to defer to Anne. So, go ahead. Yeah, I don't. I, I think I'm co-hosting, so I don't have a blue hand. So thank you, Toro. 
Um, and Tokyo, thank you so much for your talk. I really appreciate you being here and it was wonderful to see you and, and hear you talk about Dogen. And I was just curious if Dogen talked about uh, here and space and where we are, uh, because there seems to be a focus on time and now. So that's my question. Yes, good one. Um, and actually, when in Dogen's definition of these three types of triple treasure, he doesn't use the word now. That was my uh, that was my commentary on Dogen, and um, and you're exactly right that um, now is a kind of um, um, ultimate the ultimate temporal dimension, and here is the ultimate spatial dimension. And uh, yes, I, we could even say that um, if we understand now in this way that we've been talking about now today, that it's, it's not like, um, it's not a moment between two other moments. It's not a um, flowing, changing now, it's an unchanging now. And if we define here as not a, um, not a place, a tiny place between two other places, but, um, but all pervading here, that includes all locations and, uh, and also never changes. He, here is always here, wherever we are, wherever anyone ever is, is always here. Um, in that way, um, here and now, I would say meet exactly as the one inconceivable suchness. When we start to approach it, it's like time now is a temporal um, dimension and here is a spatial dimension, but at the full, the full um, extent and meaning of both now and here, uh, I would say they're identical. They, they lose their, because they lose their temporal and spatial um, quality in the, in the full extent of them. That they're actually like two names for the same reality now and here. So, and I think you're exactly right that here is just as valid as now to express um, reality, unchanging, unmoving, unlocated, timeless, dimensionless reality. And of course, if you, if you stick the two words that close together, now and here, stick them closer and closer together, they become nowhere. <laughs> Pat's next. Thank you for your talk, Tokyo. Um, well, you introduced an interesting term when you were answering Makwa's question, and I'd love to hear more about it. And that was a uh, Buddha pain. Buddha pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, if we can, if we can um, understand this subtle point that. Um, Everything that's um, happening, all experience, 
It's another name for what's happening. It's happening now, within now, um, a manifestation of now. That might be a little harder to understand. An expression of now, the display of now is all, all experience is um, in its essence, nothing other than transformations of now. If we can understand that, then we can see all, then all experiences in their true nature are um, now, which today I was saying is a kind of synonym for Buddha. Now is, a, is another name for Buddha. So in that way, any experience, it doesn't, it doesn't matter so much the content of the experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. I mean, of course these things matter to us as humans, but in terms of the true nature of the experience of pleasant or unpleasant, pain or pleasure, uh, in their essence, they're identical. Pleasure and pain are identical in their essence, which we call now. And therefore we could call it to include the, to include the um, particular um, um, temporary expression, we can say pain and to include the, the unchanging essence, we can say Buddha and then we'll put them together and call it Buddha pain. <laughs> and you could say, well, is this just, is, we're just playing around with words. What's the, you know, we have our life to live here, but I would say no. This is a this is a teaching that that could be um, really help us um, because we all experience pain. Uh, so when there's pain, this is kind of a like a Zen approach to. I'm kind of sort of jumping here to the ultimate too. I think really a maybe more practical way to say it's when there's pain first. We just don't resist it. And we really um, are willing to um, really feel it. I think we've all heard this kind of thing around Zen centers. We don't try to escape from it. We just fully um, accept it because from this point of view, if we're trying to escape it and get rid of it, then we're making it into something other than Buddha pain. We're like saying what's really real is the pain the painful feeling itself. And now we've kind of, if we're, if we're trying to get rid of it, that's what we're doing. So you could say, <laughs> from this way we're talking today, you could say the reason we don't want to get rid of it is because, um, not so much because it'll, it's, it'll cause more pain, but because it's like out of accord with reality. We're giving it too much if we're trying to get rid of it, we're giving it too much reality that it doesn't have. So first we're like, okay, I'm just gonna not do anything about it. I'm just gonna be here with this pain. And uh, when we can settle with it some for a while, then we can start asking it um, who it is, what it is. I think, we, you know, I didn't even mention that before, but of course that's an essential step before asking pain what it is, we have to really um, be willing to be with it. If we jump to like pain and like, who are you? We, it was a little, we have a little bit of an agenda usually to like 
but we were asking it because we were trying to get rid of it. Like, I don't need, I don't, I don't need to get rid of you because you're just an experience. And I'm really curious about what experience is. So let's to get to to be able to explore it, we have to be kind of settled in it. If we're trying to get away from it. That's kind of the interesting thing. It seems like we're trying to get away from any experience or, or tightly grasp any experience that kind of prevents our exploration of it, seems to me. So that's kind of a preliminary step. It's like first, we're not trying to get rid of it or, or grasp it, we'll just be with it. And of course, zazen is the best practice for just sitting with whatever we're experiencing. And sometimes we, we, we think that that's all there is to zazen, is just, um, is just sitting in our experience and being with it. And sometimes maybe that's all we can do and have the energy for it. That's already excellent. But, but there are these further dimensions of zazen where once we're sitting with it, then we can start asking it questions. Kokyo, I think I have a question. Yes. But um, it's hard to frame. So um, anytime I hear about um, something in Buddhism that is unchanging and eternal, I immediately think, how is that possible? Everything changes. <laughs> but this talk really helped me understand better what that's about. But I do have a question about the scenery and about, I think you used the word at some point, um, it's a bit about skillfulness. So is relating skillfully to the scenery practicing compassion? And um, I like the idea of scenery as, a, you know, included in now, included in what you're calling now. It's not apart from it, it's not separate from it. So that makes me feel less like, oh, you're just the scenery, <laughs> you know you meaning me and everything else but um i think you're getting at it when you're responding to people's questions about pain and suffering and harm but could you say something specifically about compassion yeah well and first of all i appreciate your remark about um we we um we hear so often in dharma teachings about how everything is impermanent there's no exceptions Everything is destructible and permanent. And uh, that is it. That is a central teaching of the Buddha. So um, all, that all conditioned phenomena, experiences, things, events, um, appearances, they're all impermanent. So um, if we start talking in this way about this indestructible, unchanging, eternal reality, then uh, we just have to make sure that we're not talking about a thing, one of those things that, I mean, the Buddhist language is all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. So you have to understand that this now uh, that we're speaking of is not a conditioned phenomena. It's unconditioned and emptiness fits into this category to emptiness is not a conditioned phenomena. Uh, so um, 
so it's okay to talk that way, but we're so used to only relating to conditioned phenomena that, um, that uh, we can start putting now into that category consciously or unconsciously. And so I think that the danger that we tend to put anything that has a name into this category of some sort of thing, that that's why some in some times in Buddhist tradition, that just say everything is impermanent. They just don't talk about the unchanging, um, eternal, um, because it has a danger of like, we'll, we'll start putting it into the thing category. But uh, as long as we don't do that, then, then um, we can, we're allowed to talk about it. <laughs> and uh, especially when we're talking about refuge and the ultimate refuge, 100% refuge. I think we need to almost start talking that way because it's nothing impermanent is worthy of refuge. And if that's all there is, then there is no refuge. So, um, and then this issue of, yeah, the scenery, um, we should have compassion for the scenery of our life um, because that's our life. And I think you mentioned something like um, we can really have compassion for it and take care of it well because in because it's it's reality you could say that the way the scenery appears is not really real the way it appears to us but it has a reality you could say the scenery has a reality and that reality is now because that's like where the scenery is happening <laughs> the scenery is is flowing through now. And therefore it's not something other than now. So you could say all kinds of event, you know, conventional appearances and the nitty gritty of our life, we might feel like, well, this is forget about that and just be here now and just ignore that stuff. We don't even have to have compassion for it because it's really now from this non-dual perspective, it is now, it's, there's nothing um, separate from now. And if we start to separate out the, um, the changing scenery from the unchanging now, then we might want to just respect and take care of the unchanging now. So you see that the essence of the scenery, the true nature of the scenery is um, the inconceivable unchanging now. And at that by understanding that more and more deeply, I think that may help us take care of the particular scenery more in a more compassionate way, which is, I think, one way of understanding why, like in, in the Zen tradition, we say like, pick up the teacup with two hands and like every little, like if you find a chopstick in the mud, you should clean it off and, and um, use it because it's a precious, manifestation of now rather than like ah it's just some garbage throw it out that's compassion for chopsticks in the mud but of course people are even more important um, we are all expressions of now and our true nature is uh, the same true nature as Shakyamuni Buddha I mean literally right from this point of view of Shakyamuni Buddha's body and mind uh, 
are right now. You could say we're right now, but are right now because there's no other now. And so we're, if we disrespect any, any sentient beings, no matter how deluded or obnoxious they are, um, we're actually disrespecting Shakyamuni Buddha. So we, we share the same reality. So I think this, this shared reality of now is, um, we could say, is the basis for true compassion and care and respect. Yeah, often in, in Buddhist tradition, they, they say, well, this kind of thing of like verifying the reality of Buddha now um, would come after like a long time of like um, cleaning up our act and getting, you know, getting our compassion, a lot of compassion and kindness to, to everyone first to kind of generate the, the merit needed to verify Buddha. But um, often in Zen tradition, these things are kind of reversed. It's this kind of this emphasis on, on um, first verify the reality of now, and then, and then from that verification, naturally kindness and compassion go forth. It's a little bit like, it takes more trust, I think. But maybe in reality, how it actually works is both. We need a lot of merit and, um, and virtue in order to open completely to now. And then after we open to now, then our, then our, our kindness and compassion can really um, uh, be even wider. So it's kind of like circular. It's not really that there's any one part comes first and the next later in the end. Thank you. I found myself listening with joy to what you were saying. So that's usually a verification for me. <laughs> Wonderful. Hallelujah. Svaha. Yeah. Yeah is another name for now. I see David. Maybe that will be our last question. Thank you. Thank you for this uh, great talk. It's, um, I will tell you that thinking about now in the way that you addressed it brought me back a little bit to astronomy class in uh, college when we talked a lot about space and time. Um, and I've always enjoyed that connection between Buddhism and, and Zen and, and kind of physics. Um, but what, what I wanted to ask you is um, actually about the body and now and how i uh bring myself to now is through recognizing that this body is here now and my question is is that effective <laughs> i think uh yeah entering here now through this temporary manifestation we call the body uh, is quite effective. And it may be that um, the main reason that is so is because what often, um, what often obscures 
here and now for us is conceptual thinking too much like discursive conceptual thinking it's like it comp it just like adds these layers of complication over this total simplicity we call here and now and the body is a little bit more in the direction of the of the simplicity of here and now it's less conceptual it's um it's a more direct experience the um, sensations of the body and also just like seeing form and hearing sound uh, is like a little more direct um, access point to here and now it seems than a lot of conceptual conceptual thinking can almost like um, just it just adds layers so I think that's the main that's what I would say is the kind of the main reason why there's this emphasis uh, in Zen on posture and breath and being with the body is like it just it settles our conceptual thinking mind and then maybe when we're settled like I mentioned earlier then there is this thing about words right the Dharma comes through words and we take refuge in those giant bookshelves <laughs> behind some of these <laughs> um, screens here because um, it does come in that way too. So I think the combination of um, grounded and bodily experience, the five senses just open without adding anything. And that, oh, this is actually, there's, there's this dimension of here and now that I kind of forgot till I settled into this body. And then um, once we're settled into the body, like that, then maybe sometimes we pull a book off the shelf and it says like, wait a minute, did you um, forget some detail in here? Maybe it points out something we, we overlooked. Thank you all. Thanks for your questions and your discussion and, and your presence. And yes, thank you very much, Kokyo. I, I hope you are able to um, get to Nepal. Uh, yeah, to me, like, it doesn't matter so much either <laughs> way because it's always here. <laughs> well, it'd be nice to have you come into our scenery more more often before you go, if that's possible. Sure. <laughs> So thank you all so much for being here. And thank you very much, Kokyo, for your teachings. It was always a pleasure to have you here. <laughs>